So if you join me here in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I just wanted to start with a natural demonstration of human anthropology using this chunk of wood. So what do I mean, a natural demonstration of human anthropology? So I'm talking about what happens throughout our life, the way of being humans. And we're conditionalizing that, we're qualifying it by, okay, how do we approach the last four things? Um, so then you see there on your handout, we might think of a baptized soul as a freshly milled pine board. So nice, straight, has that nice pine smell. This is actually a cedar board, um, but there's a reason why I ha have brought this chunk of cedar board. Still smells like a good one. So this board, baptized, is fit for the house of God and ready to contribute to the building up of the church. God wills all to be saved, and he has a plan for this specific board, just as he has a plan for all of us. Okay. Um, so you see that bullet point there. It is fitting, but it should not be should it not be stored properly it has a tendency to be distorted which we would refer to the fact of concupiscence or decay so if you have a piece of wood and it's nice freshly milled but you don't store it properly maybe it's too humid maybe it's in water it might warp so that means you know it's not straight anymore it's going to be hard to work with or it might decay, it might start developing wood rot. And so there's a natural tendency within the soul, concupiscence, that says we have a tendency to cause ourselves decay. We have a tendency to kind of become not straight as we should be. And we have to work against concupiscence. Also, this board, should it not be treated properly, it will receive imperfections so make a bad decision you might scuff it up a bit do something really bad to it you know you spite yourself take a nail ouch whether it has something nailed to it or there's a hole in it the board has some imperfections and we would think of those ones. These defects more or less correspond to the various sins one commits throughout one's life. 
Some defects will be less serious. Eventually, uh, we've mentioned it before, um, and if you need a refresher on what are venial sins versus mortal sins, there's that glossary in the back of the handout that you could go and look. Um, but venial sins, those which harm, as we'll talk about, God's life within one soul. Mortal sins are the ones that um, cause us to lose that share of God's life within one's soul. Um, so these defects, some of them will be more penetrating, some will be less penetrating. It might be that the owner of the board might decide that he or she no longer wishes to be restrained by the reality of the original board. And so they're going to cut the board into two pieces. I'm not going to cut the whole board, but you get the point. And I made that our example of what happens when we commit a mortal sin. That's why I say we ground it in the reality of the original board. So the original board, we were born into a universe that is created by a loving God. And he has given us rules for a sure and fulfilling life. But should we say, God, I've heard that. I want to be God in my own life. So I'm going to live by my own rules. We are the ones that's taking the saw and cutting this connection between God. And we're going to choose. And because God's a loving God, he gives us the freedom to act, but then there's corresponding or corresponding effects to our actions. And just a refresher on mortal sin you see there. For a sin to be mortal, it must be gravely wrong, does serious harm to God, oneself, or neighbor. You must know that committing you must know committing the act with full knowledge that it fractures the reality of the original board relationship with God, oneself, and one neighbor. And you must do it with full consent. You must be ready to saw that board in half, or you must be willing to commit this act with full intention, choosing to live by a new reality and distort the true reality created by God. So then throughout one's life, it's just a matter of fact, we can all think about it, we probably are going to receive some imperfections on our board, but that we may also remove the imperfections in the board by sanctification, bringing one's life into conformity with God's will and following his commands. He gives us means to do so. And so then there's a way to take the nails out of the board. That's what we're going to start to begin to talk about tonight. When we talk about purgatory, we know that sometimes we still have work to be done to help us purify our soul, return this board to a natural state. So then purgatory would be like the time when we take our wood filler and fill in our holes so that when it comes out, we have a board that looks pristine, just like it used to be. And it reaches a state of perfection. And of course, the board, because the wood filler is never going to become the actual wood again. It's an imperfect example. But you see the kind of what's this demonstration getting at. Purgatory is the act of if we die with some holes still in our board, we take the wood filler during purgatory and we get a board that is fitting again for God's temple, which would be heaven. So those individuals who willfully decide to sever the original boards and do not seek reparation to remake the board with the help of the miller are cast out for they are no longer fit into where they were to be fitted into the temple of God. 
by their own actions. And then at the end of the time, the boards are made whole, kept whole, and brought to the temple of God, find their place in God's building. So it builds up the church at the end of time in the beatific vision. So I bring my board just to kind of give you a brief demonstration of like how we can kind of begin to think about this from a natural understanding. So I used just this example here. And I grabbed this board because this board has special meaning for me. Um, you can see my dad and I working on projects at our house in Emporia, Kansas. Couldn't have survived in that house without my dad and his help. Um, but this board is not the same board that was used eventually for the trim around these windows, uh, but it is a trim board that we had too much of cut off and used for trim around an exterior window. Um, but there's, we have a great story about how the city, um, I don't know you call them, city permit person came and shut us down. And uh, needless to say, the reason why I have this board is because it's a remember of the great memories that me and my dad had working together in Emporia. All the joys, the frustrations, the blood, the sweat, tears, in a sense. Uh, but it is a reminder of the life that I lived in Emporia. And it carries this meaning of I'd be able to see this cedar board, and I'm always going to think of the time that I got to spend with my dad working on my house. So not only is this just a piece of wood, it's a piece of wood imbued with meaning. There's something more to this piece of board than just is a cedar two by six. So yeah, it's a board, it's material with meaning, which is, I just want to offer that at the beginning because eventually we're going to come back to material with meaning. All right, so let's turn the page and we'll begin with a theological understanding of human anthropology. So we saw a kind of a demonstration of how we are, this way of being. Well, let's talk about what does it mean from theology that, as we see up here, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of, of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. So we hear Man is made in the image and likeness of God. And we might think, okay, God is a male. He's six foot and a half tall, weighs 165 pounds, has some slightly wavy brown hair and blue eyes, right? That's what it means to be the image of Blake, but does that mean that's what it means to be made in the image of God? And no, it's not. What it means when scripture talks about being made in the image and likeness of God is that we reflect the nature of God, God's pure spirit. He doesn't have a body, but the immortal part of our, the immortal soul and its nature is what we reflect God in. So in the beginning, 
God was made man as a mirror of himself in the world. We shared in God's life and action by loving as God loved in a complete gift of self. So we had the ability to love. Our intellects were perfect. We had an ability to choose and do good. We had unclouded will and judgment, freedom and strength to choose the good. And then we were made stewards of creation. And so we were beneficially creative. We had dominion over the earth, not in the sense that we were domineering, but in the sense that we are helping it reach its full potential. So we're created in this creative act of love. And that's how God makes us. So we reflected him in the world at the beginning. And we're also created at once being a corporeal and a spiritual being that we're made of matter or made of stuff as well as we have an internal spirit. We have this spiritual component that gives us life. And so you see that there halfway down that page. The biblical account expresses this reality in symbolic language when it affirms that then the Lord God formed man of of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Man, whole and entire, is therefore willed by God. But we know... There's more to the story. We heard that when Chad talked about from creation to corruption, the fall. Man, tempted by the devil, let his trust in his creator die in his heart and abusing his freedom, disobeyed God's command. This is what man's first sin consisted of. All subsequent sins would be disobedience toward God and lack of trust in his goodness. Scripture portrays a tragic consequence of his first disobedience. Adam and Eve immediately lose the grace of original holiness. They become afraid of God, of whom they have conceived a distorted image, that of a God jealous of his prerogatives. So if we were a mirror of God in the world, made in his image and likeness at the beginning, what happens is, what you can see on the page at the fall. I usually say like, okay, when we were made Adam and Eve, we could look in the mirror and we would see back, not an actual embodiment representative, but in a sense of our nature and our abilities, we would look at the mirror and we would see God looking back at, at us. At the fall, Adam and Eve take their fists and they punch that mirror and it shatters. It's not completely broken, as you can see, but it's distorted, it's fractured. And so no longer do they have this perfect ability to be and act like God in the world. You can see there what happens to them. The control of the soul's spiritual faculties over the body is shattered. They have a clouded will and a tarnished intellect. They're no longer able to fully know and choose the good as they should. The union of man and woman becomes subject to tensions. Their relations henceforth marked by lust and domination. So before, you were able to love like God loves, complete gift of self. Now, man and woman don't love with the complete gift of self. So they have a tendency towards use and not love. So oftentimes we think love 
the opposite is hate. In the truest sense, love is to be a gift of self, to will the good of another. The opposite of that is to use someone, to use ones for one's own advantage. Okay, so that enters into the world. We look at people to be used. Go ahead. There's a major difference right here. I hope this will be helpful. I'll try to keep it really brief. Between the non-Catholic understanding of what's with them and the Catholic understanding. In the Catholic understanding, the, the mirror is fractured, just as you said, Blake, but it's not entirely destroyed. In the non-Catholic, Protestant, especially the Reformed understanding, the mirror is absolutely destroyed. Our nature is absolutely destroyed and ruined, and there's nothing left of it. So that when grace comes from God, it actually, grace actually destroys in the Protestant, non-Catholic understanding. It destroys our present nature and gives us an entirely different nature. Whereas in the Catholic understanding, our nature isn't entirely destroyed, it's just really, really badly hurt. And what grace comes and does is repairs it. It, it perfects our hurt nature. And I, I hope that sets you up well for where I see you going in your handout. Okay. It does. Nope. And then so union of man and woman becomes subject to tensions. Then also the harmony in which we lived with creation becomes broken. Creation becomes alien and hostile towards man. And then also man has a tendency to use creation to his own ends, almost to a fault at times. So man domineers creation instead of being a steward of it. Finally, the consequence explicitly foretold for the disobedience will come true. Man will return to the ground, for out of it he was taken. Death makes its entrance into human history. So man rejects his portion to share in God's life. And then we have a little reflection here on the loss of grace of original holiness. So that would the grace of original holiness is what we're calling this state in which we were made, our nature at the beginning. So when we lose this, how did, the Adam, how did the sin of Adam become the sin of all his descendants? The whole human race is in Adam as one body of one man. By this unity of the human race, all men are implicated in Adam's sin, as all are implicated in Christ's justice. It is a sin which will be transmitted by, the propagation, by propagation to all mankind. That is, by the transmission of a human nature deprived of original holiness and justice. And that is why original sin is called sin, only in an analogical sense. It is a sin contracted and not committed. It is a state, not an act. So can I have a volunteer to come be Adam? And a volunteer to come be Eve? All right, come be Adam. We still need a volunteer to be Eve. Do I need to knock him out first so we can put him in a sleep? Uh, in sleep and we take a rib out of him? Where's our Eve? And we are going to need just some descendant. It doesn't have to be Cain or Abel or um, any of the others, but we just need another volunteer to be a descendant here. Okay, okay. So in, in this example here, I just wanted to show this. Like, this is how it works. Okay, I'm God. Adam, here, I want to give you this great gift. This great gift is a share in my life, okay? And when you receive it, live in it, you're going to look and be my image in the world to share my love, okay? 
cherish this with your life. Okay. Now, share it with your beloved Eve. Okay, great. So they're sharing the gift of life, and then the snake, the snake comes, the devil, and then what happened? What does Eve do with the gift? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, seriously. Yeah, seriously. Okay. Kill, no, uh, you're going to destroy, destroy it. it. Don't, don't open it. Destroy it. Oh, okay. Step on it. Kelly, okay. she would be super disappointed if that box did not get stepped on tonight. Okay? Perfect. Oh, Eve, what happened to the gift I gave you? What was that? <laughs> That's true. I should I should do that for two of the story. Yeah. Only here. Alright, so yeah. then descendant come here. Okay. I need you to give your descendant <laughs> the great gift that I gave you. <laughs> Alright. So you end up with a gift still. Distorted. Broken maybe. A little bit. A thousand white elephant gift parties later, all of us have it. <laughs> exactly. So I just wanted to show that as in the sense of, like, how do we understand original sin? Like, we still possess this gift. You all may sit down, and uh, you get to keep the gift, too. Um, but just wanted to highlight that of how do we understand. So it's passed along. We still maintain this gift, but it does need to be made whole again. So then... God does not dispose of man. On the top there of the next page, and sorry if I have, uh, I've realized some of this is a little bit too wordy and I think we'd be um, too much on time um, if I read everything. But uh, up there on the top, God did not dispose of man. After his fall, man was not abandoned by God. On the contrary, God calls him in a mysterious way, heralds, calls him, and in a mysterious way, heralds the coming victory over evil and his restoration from his fall. This passage in Genesis, towards the end of three, is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. The first announcement of the Messiah and the Redeemer is contained in it, of a battle between the serpent and the woman, and of the final victory of a descendant of hers. And it concludes this section. The man called his wife name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So I just want us to pause here and ponder that question. What is the purpose of garments of skin and clothing them? It doesn't, if we go to the scripture, it doesn't explicitly say it, but let's just kind of ponder the question and think. What if, if we're following the account, if we remember, they recognized they were naked and they felt shame. So what might garments of skin or clothing do for them? And if I have my shame reduced and um, I'm able to kind of hide behind it, could it possibly also allow me to kind of have relations again? Like I'm not worried about you completely pointing the finger at me, making fun of me, right? Mm-hmm. It helps us re-engage. So in a sense, God's giving us some material means. He's not leaving them naked. He's not leaving them exposed. 
but he gives them some material means in order that they can continue to move closer towards the original state in which they were created. Store that one in, because we're going to come back to that thought. So then, let us talk about justification by grace. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, St. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans. The full scripture there is italicized under justification by grace. So at the beginning, we talked about the kerygma and conversion, that word metanoia, that turning around. So halfway down the page there, we see the first work of grace of the Holy Spirit is conversion, affecting justification in accordance with Jesus' proclamation at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the calling card of what we talked about. The initial call, Jesus says, you're going that way, come follow me this way. And that's the first work of grace that the Holy Spirit initiates in us. For us to recognize we're going in the wrong direction. We need to turn around. And so the Holy Spirit continues to work. Moved by grace, man turns toward God and away from sin, thus accepting forgiveness and righteousness from on high. So when we're justified, moved by this grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it detaches man from sin, which contradicts the love of God, purifies his heart of the sin, and then justification follows upon God's merciful initiative of offering forgiveness. So it reconciles man with God. It frees from the enslavement to sin, and then it heals us. So it heals our wounded nature. Justification is at the same time the acceptance of God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. With justification, faith, hope, and charity are poured into our hearts and obedience to the divine will is granted to us. So it's a grace of the Holy Spirit that brings about these great effects that brings us back into union with God. And the effects of justification are mediated by corporal means and have I should have put corporeal, not right? It's missing an E. Yeah. Yep. Thanks, spell check. Um, justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ, who offered himself on, a cro- on the cross as a living victim, holy and pleasing to God, and whose blood has become the instrument of atonement for the sins of all men. First bullet point is from Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not want. You want you opened my ears. Holocaust and sin offerings you do not request. So I said, see, I come with an inscribed scroll written upon me. I delight to do your will, my God. Your law is in my inner being. So that's Psalm 40. And then as we read Romans, we hear the author to the letter, or not Romans, Hebrew, Um, we hear the author to the letter of the Hebrews refer to this same thing when speaking about Jesus Christ. So then the author to the Hebrews writes, for this reason, when he, Jesus, came into the world, 
He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Holocausts and sin offerings you took no delight in. Then I said, As is written of me in the scroll, Behold, I come to do your will, O God. First he says, Sacrifices and offerings and holocausts and sin offerings you neither desired nor delighted in. These are offered according to the law. Then he says, Behold, I come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been consecrated through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So we see first in Psalm 40, what is desired? A will completely obedient to God. How is that made perfect? In a body offered on the cross to bring about the effects of justification, as we'll soon see. Justification establishes cooperation between God's grace and man's freedom. On man's part, it is expressed by the assent of faith to the word of God. Word of God there capitalized as in the human, divine human person, the word of God, Jesus Christ, which invites him to conversion, repent and believe in the gospel. And in the cooperation of charity, while the prompting of the Holy Spirit who proceeds and preserves his ascent. Justification is the most excellent work of God's love made manifest in Christ Jesus and granted by the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit is the master of the interior life. By giving birth to the inner man, justification entails the sanctification of his whole being. So Jesus fills this wall, this will to have complete obedience to God. And then he offers that same share to us by saying, come, follow me. And it has corporeal effects on our body, changes the way that we live and act by his word. And so we ascend to this faith, faith that demands action. Okay, so keep that in mind as we go along. Grace. So our justification comes from the grace of God. Grace is favor, a gift. The free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become children, adopted sons, and partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. So back in my totus tuus days when I taught the section on the sacraments. So if you don't know what Totus Tuus is, it's Traveling Vacation Bible School here in the Diocese of Lincoln across uh, the U.S. for Catholics. Um, beautiful, beautiful uh, life-changing experience for me. But I taught on the sacraments and grace. And so when we were teaching, I was mama duck a lot of the times, which meant I was with the first and second graders. And uh, sometimes I was just hanging on by dear life to keep those kids in line. Uh, Adults are more of my mode of thinking. I'm learning each and every day with my daughter, Jacinta, to get into the child-like mindset. But I would teach them grace. What is grace? Grace is God's life living within us. Okay, Grace is God's life living within us. It's a participation in the divine life of God. So if you ever get asked again, you're going to remember that big God's life living within us. Okay, So that's what grace is. 
It introduces us into the intimacy of Trinitarian life. And then as an adopted son, henceforth man can call God Father in union with his only son. He receives the life of the spirit who breathes charity into him and who forms the church. The grace of Christ is a gratuitous gift, a free gift that God makes to us of his own life, infused by the Holy Spirit into our soul to heal it of sin and to sanctify it. The calling to receive and participate in divine and eternal life is supernatural. What's supernatural to man? To live a life of holiness. And so grace restores, renews in us this ability to act as God in the world. But then also, when it says supernatural, it means it's above our ability. We can't merit it. Well, we can't do it on our own. It has to be God's grace gifted towards us. So he's the one that supplies us with the grace in order to live this divine and eternal life here and now. And so we call this grace specifically sanctifying or deifying grace. And it is a habitual gift, a stable and supernatural disposition that perfects the soul. It enables it to live with God and to act by his love. Preparation for man is for the reception of grace is already a work of grace. Mention that. But I want to make another distinction to here. So when we consider the preparation of man for the reception of grace is already a work of grace, um, we have to consider what are some other types of grace. So we have actual grace, which refers to God's interventions, whether at the beginning of conversion or in the course of the work of sanctification. I like to call these here, they're the kick in the pants every day that get us moving in the right direction. So they're the spurring that God pushing us. Hey, do this. Walk this way. And then all people every day receive actual graces, whether they're in a state of grace or not. So all the time, God's calling us. Hey, come back to me. It's up to us to recognize those actual graces and work on them. And then there's habitual grace, which is a permanent disposition to live and act in keeping with God's call and is uh, distinguished in I uh, need to circle that to remember. I chopped up some ca- uh, paragraphs from the catechism. Um, so then cooperating gr- with grace. Indeed, we also work, but we are only collaborating with God who works for his mercy and has gone before us. It has gone before us so that we may be healed and follows us so that once healed, we may be given life. It goes before us that we may be called and follows us so that we might be glorified. It goes before us that we may live devoutly and it follows us so that we may always live with God for without him we can do nothing. God wants to work with us and so his initiative demands our response for he has created us in his image and that brings along with it freedom, the power to know and love him. And then also, uh, we can talk about special graces called charisms, and they're spoken of by St. Paul, St. Peter, um, but it means favor, gratuitous gift, benefit, um, whatever their character is, sometimes extraordinary, 
such as the gift of miracles or of tongues, charisms are oriented towards sanctifying grace and are intended for the common good of the church, intended for the building up of the church. And then they are at the service of charity, which builds up the church. And among them might be mentioned the graces of state that accompany the exercise of responsibilities of Christian life and of the ministries within the church, prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, zeal, and intercession. So there's sanctifying grace, which we're most concerned about tonight, but then there's another form of grace, actual grace, that gets us moving in the direction. And we have habitual grace that keeps us moving in that direction. And then also um, the Holy Spirit, baptism, bestows special graces called charisms or ministry-helping um, gifts. And uh, we have a whole section on our website if you're interested in the charisms. Um, let's come to talk more, but that's a whole different conversation. Since it belongs to the supernatural order, grace escapes our experience and cannot be known except by faith. We cannot therefore rely on our feelings or on our works to conclude that we are justified and saved. However, according to the Lord's words, thus you will know them by their fruits, reflections on God's blessings in our lives. The lives of the saints offer us a guarantee that grace is at work in us and spurs us on to an even greater faith and attitude of trustful poverty. As well as, we'll see here, he gives us specific means to know that grace is at work in us. So pocket that one again as we will come back to how do we know that we're receiving grace? And then I did want to make mention of merit. So with regard to man or with regard to God, there is no strict right to any merit on the part of man. Between God and us, there is an immeasurable inequality for we have received everything from him, our creator. The merit of God before man in the Christian life arises from the fact that God has freely chosen to associate man with the work of his grace. God invites us. He delights that we are working with him. We're cooperating with this grace to bring good into the world, to make it just as it ought to be, to reestablish justice, set things right. The fatherly action of God is first on his own initiative, then follows man frees acting through his collaboration so that the merit of good works is to be attributed in the first place to the grace of God, then to the faithful. Man's merit, moreover, itself is due to God, for his good actions proceed in Christ from the predispositions and assistance given by the Holy Spirit. Since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can merit then for, for ourselves and for others. These graces and goods are, and then on the next page, um, you can see what we can merit. The graces needed for our sanctification for the increase of grace and charity within our lives, for the attainment of eternal life, and then temporal goods like health and friendship can be married in accordance with God's wisdom. These graces and goods are the object of Christian prayer. Prayer attends to the grace we need for meritorious actions. 
So in the sense of the conversation I was having today, I asked someone, please pray for me. This is a weak point of mine. Pray, pray that I can have the grace to be as God desires me to be. So I hope this person prays for me because I need help. We all need help. And so what we're saying is, when we pray for these things, God gives us the grace that we need. So we're asking. Then the charity of Christ is the source in us of all of our merits before God. Grace, by uniting us to Christ in active love, ensures the supernatural quality of our acts and consequently their merit before God and before men. Saints always have always had a lively awareness that their merits were pure grace. So the work that grace does within us brings about benefits, brings about effects, and we pray for those, we can ask for them. And what it's saying is those blessings, those merits, the good is to be given praise and glory for God. So then we come to the sacraments, vehicles of justification by grace. Justification has been merited us for, the pa- for us by the passion of Christ who offered himself on a cross as a living victim, holy and pleasing to God, and whose blood has become the instrument of atonement for the sins of all men. Justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God, who makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy. Its purpose is the glory of God and of Christ, the gift of eternal life. And that is paragraph 100, or 1992 in the Catechism. So then what I have here, um, and just for the sake of time, I might just highlight some of the key thoughts from these passages from Scripture. A lot of them do flow from Romans. Because Paul's writing to the Romans, and he's laying out this idea, and he comes eventually to a material means by which this is brought about, as we see referenced here. So there we see Romans 3, 22, 22, 21 through 22, and then skipping 23, uh, 24, and 25 there under that bullet point, we are justified by grace, where it says that. It's been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, and we are justified by his grace as a gift. And that through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. Expiation is another word that could be used there, but by this point out of his blood. So then justification by grace is a spiritual reality that is made known for our sakes by material means. So then if we're Reading and we follow on, St. Paul begins to talk about the faith of Abraham, who's our forefather according to the flesh. And if he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? 
was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised. So the righteous would be counted to them as so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of faith that act that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So there's a material means that denotes this spiritual reality that Abraham walked and lived in. The material means for our justification is baptism, the sacrament of faith which incorporates us into Jesus' death and resurrection. So in Romans 5 there, St. Paul says, For why we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And from the catechism there, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we take part in Christ's passion by dying to sin and his resurrection by being born to new life. And then later on, Paul is saying to the Romans, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So you can see there, the material means the action in which brings about this justification, the sacrament of faith, is baptism. What does baptism do? See there in point four. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We see justification is not only the remission, the forgiveness of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. To put off your old self, which brings, which belongs to your former manner of life, as Chad mentioned, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on a new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness put on a new way of life and then filial adoption and making us partakers by grace and divine nature can bestow true merit on us as the result of God's gratuitous justice. This is our right by grace, the full right of love, making us co-heirs with Christ and worthily obtaining the promised inheritance of life. So you see Paul says justified by grace. He mentions how the spiritual reality is made known at the beginning with Abraham. So he talks about God works through material means to make spiritual realities known. Then he lists directly our justification comes through this act of baptism. 
Baptism reconciles God to man, makes him an adopted son, and restores the life of grace within him. And then we get baptism is instituted by the Lord Jesus as the means by which the faith is propagated. And he sends forward his apostles to continue his ministry through and with the material means that he instituted. So Jesus sends forward the apostles with the command, go and baptize and make disciples of all nations. But we see him come there in John 20. The 11 are gathered in the upper room. And what's Jesus do? He holds up his hands and he says, peace be with you. He says, peace be with you again. When he has done that, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathes on them. He doesn't just say, peace be with you. Believe it. Breathes on them. Uses his body to say, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? And then when the next paragraph there, Jesus commands them, go forward. Baptize them. Make disciples of all nations. Teach them all that I have commanded you. Repeat this material means through which you bring people into covenant with me. And then we know that it's effective because Paul says there in Romans, later on in chapter 10, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. An all-encompassing mission in which Jesus is giving them a means to bring people into relationship with him. And so we're getting towards the sacrament of faith, the sacrament that initiates us and brings us into God's family as adopted children. And now you might just say, because we all hold as Christians the necessity of baptism. But so far painting a picture that Jesus used the stuff of these stuff of the earth to bring about spiritual realities. We see St. Paul make reference to another act in which material is imbued with spiritual reality, as he says. For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we see Paul there taking bread, taking wine. And we have this mandate given by Jesus to the apostles to do this in remembrance of me. And he says, this is my body. So he takes me, and this is a scripture verse that we can point back to the Eucharist, which we'll talk about in greater detail. You see Jesus continuing to use the stuff of this earth to communicate spiritual realities, which ultimately gets us to the sacraments.
So sacraments and outward sign instituted by Christ to give us grace, sanctifying grace. So it's the glue tying us back to that mirror that puts our mirror back together. So it takes those pieces, put it back together. As we live in a life of grace, and this is where my board example is imperfect because I can't remake a new board. And I don't have a fire enough to smelt a mirror. But grace in this life has the ability to heat up the soul with the fire of charity of God's love so that it, be, it can become perfected again here in this life, through the life of the saints. Well, not through the life of the saints. We can see in the lives of the saints. Like they are so, so cooperating with grace that their mirror is becoming more and more and they're reflecting more and more perfectly the image of God with which we are created at the beginning. On here, just might briefly make, so we're going to walk through the various sacraments, but you can see there the components of the sacraments. We have matter. Every sacrament has matter. It's physical stuff, which is the outward invisible sign. In most cases, it's material water, bread, wine, oil, but in some cases it is an inward contrition for sins and the vocal, vocalization of the words or the vows, which, which is exchange or in marriage people. The forms, there are words given to us by the church by the authority of Jesus through the succession of the apostles that confirm a spiritual reality is taking place, thus conferring grace. So when we talk about the sacrament of confirmation, like we actually hear words that let us know through the absolution that our sins are being forgiven. So there's an audible sign that lets us know, as we said, when I said pocket this, grace escapes our notice at times. We can look and see its fruits and its actions in our life but we don't necessarily feel all the time uh, outpouring of grace upon us. So the church gives us audible signs, audible words. And the forms, a lot of these words, are the words that let us know this is taking place. Then we have ministers. So we have valid, lawful, and delegated ministers who initiate and minister the sacrament by the power of the Holy Spirit acting through the means of the church. So um, in the sense... Also, too, we consider whether a sacrament's valid, whether it has the correct stuff, correct words or ministers used to celebrate it, whether it's lawful, it's a legitimate action on, the, on behalf of the minister that's doing it. And then someone who's delegated is properly disposed and lawfully able to celebrate the sacrament, approved by the proper authority, and intends to celebrate the sacrament. So not always are a minister delegated to celebrate the sacraments. And we can talk about that more. One example would be like Father Clark in confirmation. He has to be delegated by the bishop because the power to confirm resides in the office of the bishop. He's a pastor in collaboration with that. We'll explain that more. But just to make known that um, it doesn't just follow on one's own authority. We receive delegation. There's effects, so what is the aspects of the sanctifying grace that it does to the soul? 
And then there's specific sacramental graces, gifts proper to the different sacraments that correspond to the nature of the sacraments. We'll talk about this, and just for the sake of time, you can read through the rest of this. Um, but to boil it down, it is really important to understand that the sacraments are not magic. You have to have a proper disposition and a willing disposition to cooperate with them. Just because you receive a sacrament does not mean that if, one, you don't want it, that it's going to work. Right? So you could go through the act of baptism, but if you're like, ultimately, I don't want to be baptized, I don't have faith, you went through the rite of baptism, but you didn't receive the sacrament of baptism. And then you're open to what God wants to do with you through that outpouring of grace through the sacraments. So we can increase our fruitfulness from the sacraments by our disposition and willingness to receive them. So I have to be a perfect in the sense I know exactly. But I counsel people all the time, especially when you receive Holy Communion. Right? You're saying, Lord, I want what you want, knowing that it's best for me. And I'm willing to do whatever, knowing that it might not be what I choose. So that's the example of what it means to receive the sacrament of disposition. So you go into it saying, Lord, I want what you want, knowing that it might not be the what I choose. I'm going to do whatever you ask of me. Again, not knowing what it might not be what I choose, but that I'm willing to do it. I know that your grace is going to aid me, strengthen me in order to do it. That's the thing that really makes the sacraments fruitful is that cooperation with, with grace, cooperation with the sacraments. And then end with that quote there on the back of the page. We tire easily of abstractions and craze, crave visible signs. The icon was a tangible pledge that the things could become other than they are. This was no less true of human beings, for if wood and paint could depict the living God, then creatures of flesh and blood could aspire to likeness with God. By surrendering his Godhead to our flesh, writes John of Damascus, God has deified our flesh. There is no greater evidence of the transfiguration of human flesh than the lives of the saints. Just as the icon of Christ bids us fall on our knees to worship the one who created matter, so the icons of the saints inspire us to follow their example by imitating their virtue to give glory to God. Let's just end with that thought. This is what the sacraments do for us. They give us visible signs that give us grace that leads us to grow closer in the likeness of God so that, aided by grace, us in our cooperation, our mirror can be restored. And we see that in the lives of the saints. We can actually see and know and touch people that live this life in such a way that they give complete glory to God. So on one of the first slides, the glory of God is man fully alive, as St. Irenaeus puts it, made possible by grace given to us through the sacraments. Um, as we go forward, you might just make use of this chart here. kind of gives you uh, an overview of every sacrament. 
um, where we can find examples and reference it to it in scripture, who the minister is, what's the required state, how often you can receive it, its effects, the form, and then what the matter is. It's prepared by a Catholic apologist, Steve Wayne. And on the back there, if you are unsure of any term, I put the glossary, glossary of terms. Again, maybe, oh, go ahead, Paul. I just have a question. Yep. Are we going to spend more time on the sacrament? Yeah. So okay. from here until for a while, we are going to be walking through various sacraments. Okay. So next week's going to be the sacrament of baptism. Then we'll follow it up with confirmation. Nope. Holy Communion, because they're going to be gone that week. Um, Holy Communion, Confirmation, talk about confession. So we're going to talk about the various sacraments in the coming weeks, which is why I want to spend a majority of tonight talking about our understanding of grace. What does grace do for us? And, I mean, we could talk much more. I feel like I need to apologize for being long-winded, but I thought questions and everything. But this is a really important topic. If we don't understand... Um, the nature of grace, as well as hopefully through that article that I sent, and I have extra copies here, beginning to see the world in a sacramental way. Beginning to see the world in which God works with creation. He imbues matter with meaning that communicates his presence and his life within us. And that we should look and expect the world as that, as the way things should be, because God has made us as spiritual beings with matter, with body. So he communicates with us in ways that correspond to our nature as bodies and souls. And to see the world in a different way than just a mere chance, mere material, but that it's material with meaning that lead us back to God. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.